Thank you, Terry, and it's good to see everyone. I was saying to folks, this feels a little bit, not that I've ever done it, but I, it, I this, imagine this is what it would be like when you're doing a show that's actually filmed more for a TV audience than for, so you guys are the, the in-person audience, so that means you have to laugh a lot at the jokes, and we have a, a sound laughed track that's ready to go that will be, the button will be pushed at the appropriate times and all that good stuff. <laughs> at any rate, let's have a word of prayer as we get started this morning. Morning. Almighty God, in you we live and move and have our being. In you we find our highest good, our deepest purpose, and our greatest joy. In you we find each other and the blessing that comes from fellowship, especially with those who are seeking to include you in their lives and to follow your Son. Be with us then for the sake of your truth and your glory, especially for the sake of him who called us to uh, enjoy life and to learn life and to bring life to others, even Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, friends, we are deep into the gospel according to Luke. We have noted in the last couple of weeks how Luke wrote a story about Jesus, uh, an, a carefully investigated story, a telling of the truth about Jesus to those who love God and want to know God. Luke is telling this story not because it's fabricated from out of nowhere, but because Luke believes it, as did so many of the early church and all of us then. Luke believes that this is the story of God in Jesus, God appearing in the world in a unique fashion, a completely world-changing, cosmic-changing, history-changing fashion. And Luke wants us to know, as well as he wants all of his readers and hearers to know, who Jesus is so that we can follow Jesus. Luke has told us about the beginning of Jesus' public ministry as he's baptized by John. John, his cousin, who was in some sense the last of the great prophets of the Old Testament, the forerunners up to the Messiah. Luke has told us about Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, how Jesus began his public ministry with a confrontation with the force of evil, with the devil himself and established his plan, his purpose, his pathway, if you will, forward in ministry from which Jesus will never waver. At the end of the story, Jesus is tempted again to waver from God's plan for his life, but he does not. And so that's where we're picking up the story now is in a sense with the, the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, if you will. We're going to be reading through quite a bit of text today. We'll read a snippet and then I'll make a few comments about it and we'll leave some time at the end for some questions from you. Uh, and again, remind you that as you have your questions, we'll ask you to come up to the microphone here at the front. So let's begin with Luke chapter four, verses 14 and 15. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. Okay, this is the beginning of a section of stories. It's helpful for us to understand Luke's structure and, and what we're looking at in the bigger picture as we look at individual passage, passages. Jesus begins his public ministry in the region of his hometown. 
He does not go directly into Jerusalem. He doesn't go a long way away. He starts among the people and in the places where he has grown up, the Galilean ministry, if you will. This is the beginning of a major new section in Luke where Luke is going to tell us about what Jesus did with the beginning of his ministry. Now notice that everything that happens with Jesus is in the power of the Spirit. Jesus is filled with the power of the Spirit. We've seen how the Spirit of God comes to Jesus in a sense uh, with his baptism. And so Luke wants us to understand that everything that happens in the story about Jesus is really a story about God, God himself. Jesus is God, of course, we'll come later on to know. But if you've never heard the story, never seen the story, especially if you are living out the story in real time, we don't really know who Jesus is, but Luke is giving us a clue. Jesus is God walking among us. This is the spirit of the living God who has come to be with us in Jesus, much like God would have been in Isaiah or Ezekiel or maybe with Abraham or Isaac or Jacob. Now something big is happening in the world. And so this catches our attention and tells us that really, 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 really important stuff is going on. Now, Jesus was well-received. Jesus was very popular. People uh, appreciated his teaching. They, they began to understand some things about God and themselves perhaps that they had never seen before. And so Jesus initially is well received by the people in the Galilean region. He begins to teach and preach in their synagogues. Let's continue the story then, verses 16 through 30. When Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, Is not this Joseph's son? He said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, do here also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. And he said, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months. And there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. This is a very, very telling story 
of what happened in actually all of Jesus' ministry and what Jesus was all about. So it will help us to spend a little bit of time with this. This is a favorite passage of a lot of preachers and teachers, including yours truly, and so perhaps you've heard a lot about it, but it's good for us to get this back in our heads. Jesus goes to the synagogue in Nazareth. He goes back to his home church. Isn't that interesting? Now, everywhere that Jesus went initially, he went to the synagogues. He went back to the synagogue of Nazareth and began to participate in the worship life, the synagogue life, as he had grown up with it. Much of what you and I exercise, uh, the practice that we follow in the life of the Christian church actually comes from the historic practice of the synagogues of Jesus' day. Many Jews, of course, did not live in Jerusalem. They could not go into temple worship all the time. And so the rule was that wherever 10 adult Jewish males existed, meaning 12 years or older, they could have a synagogue. And a synagogue at its heart was simply a place where people got together, read the scriptures, talked about the scriptures, and talked then about God's presence in their lives. Now, we do that every Wednesday morning. You know, we do not have 10 adult males here. You can argue that we have no adult males here, but that would be another story, right? But that's what we do. We get together and we talk about the scriptures, we hear God's word, and we share God's word. So the fact that Jesus went to the synagogue, that he read from Isaiah, that he commented on Isaiah, that was all normal stuff. That's exactly what everybody would expect to hear happen when they gathered together in the synagogue. I want to make a point here that Jesus was a good Jew. Jesus was a practicing Jew. Now, obviously, he was much more than that, but he was at least that. And that was the basis of much of what uh, he would teach, much of how he would live, uh, the, the basis from which he engaged so much of his ministry. And so for folks that won't, don't want to pay attention to Jews today or to Judaism today, we have to say, no, we cannot understand Jesus. We cannot know what Jesus was talking about unless we understand and appreciate the Jewish roots from which he came and the habits and practices of spiritual life that he engaged. Jesus went to church, we would say. Jesus gathered together with other people of faith. Jesus shared with them. And we can never get away from that essential need. You are evidence of that essential need. That's what we're doing. It's tied directly back to the practices of Jesus and all the people that came before him. Now, what did Jesus say? Jesus chose to read from the prophet Isaiah, arguably the most famous, most popular prophet uh, of, of, uh, of all of Judaism, actually. And essentially what Jesus reads from Isaiah is this message, that God is here and now, God is present with us. God is not just in the past, God is not just in the future. God is here and now and working in the world. Release to captives, good news to the poor, all of that. God is, is at loose, alive and well on the planet Earth, we might say. And that is a great message. That's a message people needed to hear in Isaiah's time when the nation of Israel was being attacked by the Assyrian uh, Empire and eventually destroyed by that empire. But now Jesus reads that passage about the amazing things that God is doing and he says something that ultimately gets him in, into trouble and we'll see him executed. He says, today, this scripture is fulfilled 
in your hearing. Now, initially, perhaps people heard that and thought, great, God is here somewhere. God is showing up. Isn't that wonderful? But then people began to realize that what Jesus meant when he said that was that he was the fulfillment of God's promise and God's plan, that the spirit of God was in him, that what he was doing, what he was saying, and all the implications that came from that were contained within Jesus' life and ministry. And that's where the problem began. Jesus was back in his home synagogue and they did not believe that that's who Jesus could be. The people were upset. Now the way Luke records the story, there's some bits and pieces of it that we kind of need to fill in. Jesus says, well, no doubt you're going to quote to me this proverb, uh, physician heal yourself. What Jesus means to say is that he understands that the people are looking at him saying, Jesus, you're just Joseph and Mary's kid. We knew you when you were a snotty-nosed little brat, and we knew you when you were an impossible teenager. You could not possibly be this person of whom Isaiah is speaking. And so Jesus is rejected by his very own people. Jesus goes on to talk about how the people of Israel have always found a way to reject God among them. He talks about uh, uh, Elisha uh, who comes to, to heal the leper. Uh, and there were many, uh, and, and, excuse me, he talks about e Elijah who comes during the time of the famine and the people reject Elijah. He talks about uh, Elisha uh, who heals Naaman, the Syrian, the Syrian. He cleansed Naaman. He says, you know, God has sent his prophets among us before and the people reject him. The people reject him. The, uh, the people uh, experienced a, a famine, right? And, and God came to the people of Sidon. Sidon was not even really in Israel. You can go to Sidon today. I've been there before. It's now in southern Lebanon. Uh, God took care of a Syrian, not, a, not an Israeli, not a, not a Jew, but a Syrian. Right there, Jesus offends these good Jews who think they know all about God and see when God is present in their lives. But Jesus points to two examples in their history when the, the, the Jews did not receive God and his spirit and his power. And so instead, God went to people who were outside of the Jewish community. Isn't that interesting? You can see why the people were offended. Now, all throughout Jesus' ministry, that's going to be a dynamic that we see, that the people who should have had their eyes open to what God was doing in Jesus actually were blinded. And the people who had no reason to even know anything about God necessarily were the people to whom God finally appeared and they received and accepted God. Now, as Luke is writing this down, 30, 40, 50, maybe even 60 years after Jesus was gone, that had already begun to happen in the history of the early church. The Jews were rejecting the Messiah. They were rejecting Jesus and Gentiles were receiving the Messiah. And so here Luke shows us that that's actually something that began to happen at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. And of course, let's again note before we leave this, that Jesus' ministry is all about bringing the health and healing and wholeness of all of society. He is going to the poor, to the outcast, to the widow, to the foreigner, to the people who are in the, the Pharisees' way of thinking about it especially, who are outside of God's blessing all the people who are struggling, the downtrodden, the weak, all the losers of society is one way to say it. That's who Jesus has come for. That's who God comes for. 
but the strong and the mighty and the powerful that think they're blessed by God do not see it. So let's keep on going. Chapter 4, verses 31 to 37. Jesus went down to Capernaum, a city in Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbath. They were astounded at his teaching because he spoke with authority. In the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Let us alone. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. When the demon had thrown him down before them, he came out of him without having done him any harm. They were all amazed and kept saying to one another, What kind of utterance is this? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and out they come. And a report about him began to reach every place in the region. Okay, this is the first story of six stories in this section about how Jesus fulfills that promise that he read about in Isaiah of how the Spirit of God is moving now in the history of the people in real time, in real places, among real situations, and bringing health and wholeness and renewal. Here are six proofs, if you will. It's almost as if Luke is arguing a legal case. Six proofs of the presence and power of God. Notice that Jesus goes again to the synagogue at Capernaum. Capernaum is not very far from Nazareth. Likely Jesus had already been there before. There were people who would have known him there. But every story now that's going to follow, including this story, is going to tell us why Jesus was popular, why people paid attention to Jesus, why people had to deal with the fact that Jesus was, was present in their life right now because Jesus did things that nobody else could do. And we come to the story of the exorcism of a demon. Let's talk about that for a second because we as 21st century people automatically have some problems with this story. Let's just admit that, okay? But let's talk about what the story meant to the people then and then how we can understand it today. In the first century, not just in Judaism, of course, but, but everywhere in the first century, as in much of human history and still in many parts of the world, uh, there are people who understand or believe that there are powers and forces at work in the world that are spiritual powers. They are outside of normal, physical, what we might say scientifically observable processes. There are people who believed, and people still who believe, and I tend to be one of them, that there are some forces at work in the world that are outside of our actual comprehension and apprehension except in certain kinds of ways. There is evil in the world. In the first century, people believed that there were evil beings everywhere. There were at war with God. In some sense, they were the minions of, of the supreme evil being, the devil or Satan. Now, the Bible never gives us a very complete picture or necessarily even coherent picture of who the devil is, of who Satan is. The Bible speaks in many ways about this force of evil. But in the first century, people believed that, that if a person was, was sick physically or sick mentally, that they were possessed by demons. And Jesus has the power to cast those demons out. Now, just take the story at face value for a moment. If someone appears on the scene who can, who can come and, and, and cast a demon out of a person, that's amazing power. That's the power of good. That's the power of God, which is the only power 
that can conquer the power of evil. Jesus has that power. And so right there we see how God is at work to bring goodness, to bring God to where there has been only evil and the absence of God. Now let's talk for just a moment about supernatural creatures. There are a lot of people today who believe that maybe this man had a mental disease. Maybe he had a deficiency of some sort of chemical in his brain. There are all sorts of other ways that we describe why it is that a person is ill in their spirit, in their soul, in their mind, without reference at all to other beings. And I understand that. The most important aspect of this story is that there are things that exist in the world that are not of God. They take us away from God's gift of blessing and thriving and life. That's what this man suffered from. Whether it was a demon per se in the classic sense or whether it was simply a chemical imbalance in his brain or whatever it was, God has the power and God then gives us the power, we'll talk about that later, to counteract, to conquer that evil with goodness. Does that make sense to you? That is one way I think that modern people, we don't have to answer the question of whether or not there are demons. We do have to admit though, that there is such a thing as evil. I'm a great fan of, of war history, especially World War II history. Just finished watching a series of documentaries about World War II. And again, I'm impressed by just how much evil we can bring into the world, where 70 million people are killed in World War II. Of course, that's only one example of many examples. We can talk about many modern examples today. Here's something that I want us to think about, and this is a direct quotation from Fred Craddock, one of the commentators uh, that we are studying through uh, as we're looking at Luke here. Craddock says this, and this is printed in your notes because I want you to dwell on this. All this, Craddock says, may seem very primitive to an enlightened modern person, but we have not by the announcement that we do not believe in demons, we have not reduced one whit the amount of personal and corporate evil in the world. The names of the enemies have been changed, but the battles still rage. There's the point. If you believe that there are spiritual creatures that we call demons, fine. I think that there are, are areas of belief and areas of the world where an, an existence where we need simply to say there are lots of ways to understand this. The crucial thing is that we understand there is such a thing as evil and we do battle with evil and God conquers evil. That's the power of the spirit working in this person who is of the spirit, God himself. That's the point of the story. And when God conquers evil, everything is put right again in the world. There is no such thing anymore as mental illness or spiritual illness or physical illness or warfare or famine or poverty or fill in the blanks with a hundred other words. That's what happens when the power of the Spirit of God is present. Let's keep on going. Chapter 4, verses 38 and 39. After leaving the synagogue, Jesus entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked him about her. Then he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. Immediately she got up and began to serve them. Okay, there's no reference here to a demon, only to a fever. 
a physical illness. One of the things that the Christian church has always done is seek to bring physical healing to other people. One of the reasons that the first century world began to pay attention to Christians is because they would go to those places where the lepers were, where there was disease and starvation, and they would try to bring help and healing and wholeness. Whereas most of the world at that time would say, sorry, God doesn't love you. We're going to walk away from you. We don't care about your need. That's just too bad, so sad. Christians went directly to where the worst need was and tried to minister to that need because that's what Jesus did. Again, more evidence of the power of God present in the world. Then verses 40 and 41 of chapter 4. As the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various kinds of diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on each of them and cured them. Demons also came out of many, shouting, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Messiah. Well, again, more healing, more deliverance from evil, more proclamation of the presence of the reality of the kingdom of God. But here Jesus says to the demons, don't tell people who I am. Now, isn't it interesting that the Jews, many of them, and I'm not picking on Jews per se, because this is true of, of all of us to some extent, people did not recognize who Jesus was. They would not admit who Jesus was. It was the demons who knew who Jesus was and who said as much. Isn't that interesting? Evil recognizes good, and when evil is confronted with good, evil fights against good. Wherever you see people doing battle with evil, you see the presence of goodness. But here Jesus says, don't tell anybody who I am. Especially in the Gospel according to Mark, but also here in Luke, we see stories about Jesus in some sense trying to hide his identity. Why is that? Obviously, people are seeing what he's doing. He's just told the people in the synagogue in, in Nazareth, this is what I'm doing, this is who I am. But Jesus seems to want people to struggle, want, want people to understand who he really is and what he really is about. Some people think that Jesus did not want people to follow him just because he could heal them, right? Jesus, take care of my problem today and then I go on my merry way. Jesus did not heal everybody. And obviously, he left the scene at some point, right? Jesus' point was not just to come and take care of our problems today. It was to come and take care of the problems of the whole world forever. And so, uh, there's this sense that Jesus wants his ministry to unfold and wants people to understand the true scope of his ministry, not just that he's here to give us a meal every once in a while or to take care of our headaches every once in a while, but Jesus is about the business of something much deeper, much broader, much more life-changing. We'll talk more about that as we continue to go through Luke, but let's keep reading. Verses 42 to 44. At daybreak, he departed and went into a deserted place, and the crowds were looking for him. And when they reached him, they wanted to prevent him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. So he continued proclaiming the message in the synagogues of Judea. Now, notice... At daybreak, Jesus goes into a deserted place. This is another clue for us about the spiritual practices that Jesus used in his own life. 
so that he would stay close to God, so he would stay connected to the power of God, so that he could actually accomplish what God wanted him to accomplish. Not only did Jesus go to church and talk about the Bible with his friends, Jesus went off to deserted places so he could give his full attention to God, so that he could pray and be present only with God. That's something also that we do, is it not? If we forsake those disciplines, if we don't engage in them, we're saying essentially that, that Jesus didn't have anything to teach us about how to be in touch with God. Isn't that absurd? So Jesus goes away, but the crowds want him. Jesus is delivering for them. He's healing people. Let's get some more of this from Jesus, right? You would think that God would say, sure, I'm here to heal everybody. But Jesus says, no, I've got a bigger purpose. Remember, Jesus is only one man, and he is a man. Is he God? Of course he is God, but he's also just a man. He needs rest. He can't take care of everybody. People have pointed out that one of the reasons that Jesus needed to leave the scene was so that other people would get involved with his ministry. We'll see that as we go through Luke, that the Jesus left, but the power of the Spirit stays and comes into each one of us so that we can go out and do the same ministry Jesus was doing. And all of us can do a whole lot more than Jesus by himself could do. That's another implication of this gospel according to Luke. Luke wants to enlist people in the business of fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah, not suggesting that we are the Messiah. Don't ever believe that you are. We've heard about the problems of those who have a Messiah complex, right? But we get to do some of the work of the Messiah. Jesus says himself, I have to go to all the cities of God. I have to go proclaim the kingdom to everyone. And of course, initially, Jesus goes into the synagogues, to those places where people should have some idea about who Jesus was, what he was doing, and how that was the fulfillment of God's plan for the world. Let's keep on going. Once, this is chapter 5 now, verses 1 through 11. Once, while Jesus was standing beside the lake of Gennesaret, and the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he saw two boats there at the shore of the lake. The fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little way from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we have worked all night long but have caught nothing. Yet if you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they caught so many fish that their nets were beginning to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For he and all who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Then Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching people. When they had brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. Okay, Jesus has appeared on the scene, begun his public ministry. He's created quite the splash, quite the stir with healings, with exorcisms, with teaching that is amazing in its power to help the people understand God. 
And then Jesus begins to welcome other people into what he is doing. This is a story of the first call of the disciples. Now notice some elements of this story. Jesus talks with Peter. He does something amazing for Peter. Another miracle. Jesus knows where to fish. Jesus is a really good fisherman. And that catches the attention of these fishermen. Peter's first response is, wow, you are from God and I am not worthy to be in your presence. Please let me leave. Isn't that an interesting response? Many people believe that they have to become perfect in order to be in God's presence. Some people believe they actually can become perfect and they're the only ones who are worthy enough to come to church or to take the sacraments or to call themselves Christian. But that's not the story of Jesus. Jesus comes to Peter who knows he is a flawed human being and says, no, come along. Don't be afraid. That's a major message of the entire scripture. Don't be afraid of God. Now, Peter recognizes who he is. If Peter had come to Jesus and said, Jesus, I am the best guy you could ever have working for you. Here's my resume, sign me up. Jesus would have had a different response, I think. He would have said, oh, Peter, you don't get it yet, do you? But Peter does get it. He knows that he's not perfect, but he accepts and receives Jesus' love and God's welcome of him to come into ministry. In a sense, Peter repents right there. That is a repentance. Now, Jesus calls Peter and all the others to come into ministry with him. He says, come along, don't be afraid. You're going to fish for people. Later on, Jesus will talk about shepherding people, right? What was Jesus' work about in the world? It was to come find people. People who didn't know that they were a long way from God. People who did know but didn't know that there was a way back. People who didn't know that there was a God that they could come back to. Every category, every class of person, including that class of person who thought they had it all right, but of course they were all wrong. Jesus comes to everyone. And there is no exception. Jesus comes to everyone to offer relationship with God and all the blessings then that flow from out of that. Jesus comes to everyone as the good shepherd to take care of them. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus accepts everything about us, but Jesus welcomes all of us. And then Jesus needs helpers. You and I are Jesus' helpers. You actually have work to do for Jesus today. I don't necessarily know specifically what that is. Part of my work in helping Jesus is in telling you about Jesus and the fact that you need to get involved with Jesus' work. I'll be doing other versions of that work today, not because I'm a minister, but because I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And you have that same work to do. That's the implication, partly, of what, Jesus, uh, of what uh, Luke is telling us here. Let's continue on, and then we're going to take some questions. We'll have about 10 minutes or so for questions. Chapter 5, verses 12 to 16. Once when he was in one of the cities, there was a man covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he bowed with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you choose, you can make me clean. Then Jesus stretched out his hand, touched him and said, I do choose, be made clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he ordered him to tell no one. Go, he said, and show yourself to the priest. And as Moses commanded, make an offering for your cleansing for a testimony to them. 
But now more than ever, the word about Jesus spread abroad. Many crowds would gather to hear him and to be cured of their diseases, but he would withdraw to deserted places and pray. Again, another story that demonstrates God's power over evil. Another story that demonstrates that God comes and touches the leper. People in Jesus' day, of course, would not do that for good reason in some sense. This is an infectious disease. The reason we're wearing some masks today is because we don't want to infect other people. But God reached out and touched the deep disease that was in this man and healed him. Jesus stepped over all the lines. He went over all the boundaries to take care of people. Now, this is not a medical discussion. This is not something that's certified by the Centers for Disease Control or, or the Department of Food and Agriculture and all those different folks. Uh, it'd be great to get Anthony Fauci here to talk about this story, I suppose. The point, though, is that the church is called to go into all those places where we think we're not supposed to be, all those places where there is terrible evil, and find a way to bring that healing. That's what Jesus did. That's what we do. Will Jesus, will God go touch someone who's a sinner? Absolutely. That's why he's here, is to touch the sin and to heal the sin. Then, of course, at the end of this, Jesus again goes into solitude. He would withdraw to his deserted place and pray. Again, he would say, don't tell everybody about me. Go to the priests. They're the ones who need convincing. <laughs> Go to the priests and convince them. So this is the story. It, uh, we don't leave it. We, we can't conclude it today. That's okay. We're not going to conclude it till we get to the story of Easter. But here we see Jesus, the, the powerful Son of God, the one filled with the Spirit of God, healing us, reaching out to us, and calling others to be part of that healing ministry itself. So let's take a couple of questions. I've given you, uh, wow, I gave you nine questions at the end of this one, different things that come out of these stories. What are your questions? What are your comments? If you think you want to say something, start making your way up uh, to the microphone here. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for sharing the reality of your presence, for sharing the truth of your love, for sharing the ministry with us, the business of doing Jesus' work in the world. Be with us and bless us as we continue to talk about these scriptures, and then be with us and bless us as we continue to seek to live them out in our lives for the sake of a hurting world. We pray that in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I'll see you next week, the Lord willing.